welcome to the Enlightened Practice Podcast, brought to you by the Luminello Electronic Medical Record folks. Here's your host, Dr. Ken Braslow. Hi, everyone. Today, I have a special guest on our podcast. We're chatting today with Jacqueline Angolami, and she's a dual certified nurse practitioner. She's board certified as both a family NP and as a psychiatric mental health NP. And she holds a doctorate in nursing. She's a mom, an orth- author, entrepreneur, and wife. She's the founder and CEO of Empower Psychiatry, LLC, Nurse Practitioner Ally, LLC, and When We All Precept, Incorporated. And her published works include a quick start guide to private practice for nurse practitioners and smart rotation clinical journal for students completing clinical rotations. Welcome, Jacqueline. Oh, thanks, Ken. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. It's a treat to have you on today. My pleasure. Great. Today, we're going to talk about the world of uh, nurse practitioners, and I'm hoping that you can educate some of our listeners who might have some questions or confusion. And also, you could tell us a little bit about uh, your world and what it's like to be practicing as a nurse practitioner. And then... Uh, advice that you might have for uh, new grads who are coming into the field and wisdom you can share with them. Wow, definitely. <laughs> so, that's very, that's loaded. Okay? <laughs> right. Let me just put it out there. <laughs> we don't have to cover it all in the first uh, paragraph. <laughs> we'll get to it. So, um, so for starters, tell me a little bit about your background and how you oh. ended up where you uh, are today. Wow, that's a great question, Ken. Um, actually, um, you stated right. I'm dual certified in both as both a family NP and a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. And um, I, my original certification was as a family NP. So, and prior to becoming a nurse practitioner, I had worked as a registered nurse in several settings to include uh, oncology, uh, med surge, psychiatry, both inpatient and uh, outpatient pediatric, geriatric psychiatry settings. Mm-hmm. And um, I went to school to become a family NP because that was what I was advised or taught to do, not that I wanted to become a family NP. So I had a very great mentor. Mm-hmm. She was in a family NP program. Yeah, and uh, she advised me that I should consider enrolling to become a family NP, because at the time I was taking prerequisites to go to medical school and um, I was almost done with my prerequisites. And she told me that, hey, medical school is going to cost you a lot of money. You know, you are already a a registered nurse. You are practicing. Why don't you just go the NP route? I'm like, oh, what is NP? She began to educate me what it entails. And she told me that NPs do the same thing physicians do, except that they spend less money going to school and all that. So it sounded interesting. And um I was going to take MCAT, but I had to stop, and uh, I didn't take MCAT anymore. And as God has it, I ended up applying to the same school this friend was attending, and then I began taking classes to become a nurse practitioner, right? And um, I finished. I was certified. To be certified as an NP, you have to take, um, just like physicians do, you have to take a licensing exam. Uh, This one is a national exam, so I'm certified by the American... Association of Nurse Practitioners, AANP, and uh, they give you these credentials, FNP, Family Nurse Practitioner-C for certified, right? So um, 
I did not end there. I finished school and then I got a job in psychiatry as a family NP. This was in the state of Georgia, right? At this time, I lived in Tennessee, but then somebody called me on the phone and they say, hey, we have this role here. It's both inpatient psychiatry and outpatient psychiatry. You'll be rounding in an inpatient um, detox facility and inpatient for substance abuse, all of that, and mental health patients. It was a mixture of both fem females and males. And the beds were like eight for males, eight for females, and they could come in with mental health as, as well as detox, people like that are trying to get off drugs. And um, in the afternoon, you'll be seeing patients in the outpatient setting. It sounded interesting and intriguing because um, my background was both in outpatient and both mm -hmm. inpatient psychiatry. So I took the job. I mean, I interviewed over the phone and they said, yes, you are hired, right? So I was excited. It was my first NP role. I was excited but afraid. I was very excited, but was afraid of what to expect as a provider, right? It would be my first gig as a clinician, a provider. You know, I was used to taking orders, transcribing physician orders and all that. But then now, yeah, I am. I'm going to begin to give these orders myself. So I'm like, oh, my God, patients' lives are going to depend on every decision I take or make. So I have to be on top of my game. I remember showing up for my very first job on the first day. There was nobody to give me orientation. They just told me, yeah, are the patients, this is the census. I will, this was in the inpatient setting, right? It was full, 16 patients to see that morning. This is the census, nothing about this is the EMR, none of that. Ooh, so they gave it to me and the patients were all lined up. I had to see these patients and decide who's going to go home. Nobody, nobody gives you a report. It's not uh -huh. like nurses where when you go into your shift, you have shift report, right? No. For this one, there was no shift report. Nobody. Because at, at the night, at, during the night, somebody's on call. When 8 o'clock shows up, I'm expected to run in, on these patients and discharge them, right? So I showed up there and... Um, mm -hmm. I went through the census and I started interviewing all the patients, mm -hmm. right? I was interviewing patients, adjusting medications. Thankfully, I had a background in psychiatry as a registered nurse. And um, I used, I was familiar with taking orders from physicians, right? And um, my uh, NP program did not cover a lot in psychiatry. We did it briefly, but I mostly relied on my experience as a registered nurse and uh, what I learned myself mm -hmm. to be able to be certified in order to care for this patient. So I'll interview patients, I will adjust medications for depression, schizophrenia. I mean, I remember having a lot of complex cases, right? Yeah, I am a family NP working inside because in the state of Georgia, you can do that. It's not like physicians where you have to be both certified in psychiatry to provide psychiatric services, no. NPs, some states have leeways due to the shortage of providers in psychiatry. So some states allow FMPs to function in that role. So Georgia is one of those states. And I went there, thankfully I had a solid knowledge and background in psychiatry. And I was somebody that was eager to learn except there was nobody to teach me, right? And um, you know, Georgia requires NPs to have supervising physicians. You know, this for me, this is so flawed because they call them supervising physicians. They don't really supervise nothing. This person was like 300 miles away from me. And uh, he's just your supervising physician on paper because that's what the state requires. And they get paid hefty amount of money to do this thing. 
right? So you weren't presenting to the supervisor? No, I was not. I was not. You are only uh -huh. expected to call him if you had questions, right? He's working mm -hmm. full time somewhere else. Uh. He's working full time somewhere else. It's not like he's sitting on his desk and waiting for the phone to ring. <laughs> Hey, this is Jackie. I have this patient with 20 year old schizophrenic. He's, you know, nah, he's not that. This uh -huh. is some, they say, contact if you need. So uh -huh. basically, you are on your own. But the state says, supervising physician, they get paid hefty money. When you need them, you're going to call, sometimes they're not going to answer. Are you going to sit there and just be waiting for them to return the call? Nah, of course, you're going to take care of the patients. Do your best to ensure that they are safe and the decisions that you are making are helping this patient. So, I mean, I survived my first day. I discharged some, some I refused to take up. In Georgia, we have what we call involuntary admission where they cannot go home, they cannot be discharged even if they want to because they are a risk to themselves or other people. So there are some that will not be happy. So I discharged that I could, adjusted meds for those that I could, and I went on to the outpatient setting. I started working and I enjoyed what I was doing, right? Then I began thinking, at this time, I was enrolled in a doctoral program. I was trying to get my doctorate. So I, I began thinking, I'm like, okay, is there a way that I can better serve these patients? Because I love psychiatry and I believe that um, I don't know if I'm going to go back to family practice. So I started looking for schools, schools that I could attend to obtain a postmaster's in psychiatry as a psychiatric nurse practitioner. So luckily, I applied just to one school, and um, I was admitted. Uh, out of there are so many schools out there, but I was looking for one that was rigorous and also supportive, right? So I applied, and I got accepted into the only school I applied for, and um, it was exciting. So I was doing a doctoral program and a postmaster's at the same time, and I was working at the same time. You see how chaotic that could be? Wow. Yes. So I had to pause. I had to pause one of these programs because I couldn't do both and work at the same time. So I gave preference to pausing one semester of the psychiatry after I finished the first semester. I paused, took a break, and finished my doctoral program, and then went back and finished um, the postmasters in psychiatry. You know, and I was I did clinical rotations with psychiatrists. Uh, all my rotations with psychiatrists were with, were with psychiatrists, very good ones too. You know, I'll follow them for the course of my clinical rotation. And my program required, I believe, 650 clinical hours with a psychiatrist to be able to graduate. And um, mm -hmm. I finished that, I graduated, and then I sat now for another certifica certification exam to become a psychiatric nurse practitioner. So uh, when I passed that, I just continued in my role. You know, it helped a lot because during that course of the program, I learned a lot about not just how to approach the patient interview process, but how to approach medication management, right? Not every, not every psychiatric problem deserves a pill. There are other ways to look at things. Sometimes psychotherapy is the first line of treatment if the symptoms are not too serious. So I learned all of these in my um, um, psychiatric program. And um, I believe that it made me a better clinician. And I am very happy that I returned to school to do that. Mm -hmm. Because psych is where my passion is. I don't see myself doing anything else but psych. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
and I've been doing it now for close to six years. I love it. Mm -hmm. And um, at the end of the day, my goal is to ensure that patients can live life the way they want to, and they are happy, they are safe, they are not limited by um, psychiatric diagnosis because they are human beings first. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, sure. so that's my route. Mm -hmm. Wow, okay. So in your day-to-day -day practice now, are you mostly doing medication management? Do you do any therapy? How, uh, how do you spend most of your uh, clinical time? Well, that's a great question. I actually do mostly medication management. Um, but th there are times where I can see a patient that I believe will benefit from psychotherapy immediately. And if we do not have a counselor who is ready to take on this patient, I will have the staff put that patient on my schedule for counseling services, pending and opening in a counselor because I try to not manage both. I try to only do one because I don't like to treat somebody and then see them again and over and over because the psychotherapy sessions are sometimes weekly, you know, depending on how serious the patient's case is. And I, I try to not see many. I currently have just one patient that I provide psychotherapy for, a pediatric patient who is about maybe 14 years old. And um, on top of that, even when I'm doing medication management, all my sessions, I try to incorporate some supportive psychotherapy, like supportive counseling, psychoeducation, mm -hmm. I use CBT sometimes briefly as mm -hmm. needed, depending on the patient's case, yeah. Mm -hmm. mm, okay, and what's your um, typical mix of uh, diagnoses in the patient population you're seeing? Mm, great question. Most patients that I see suffer from depression and anxiety and um, sleep disorders, attention deficit. Um, I have maybe about three or four schizophrenic patients, patients with schizophrenia. And um, I'll say about 25 patients, 25 percent, sorry, of my patient population, bipolar disorder, bipolar depression, one or two. Uh, I have a mixture of insomnia. I have about maybe 0.1 percent schizophrenia mm -hmm. and um, about 45 to 50 percent would be by depression, major mm -hmm. depression, anxiety disorders, PTSD, and um, I have a few, well, OCD, yeah, anxiety disorders. A few of my patients fall in that category. And uh, some with severe OCD, agoraphobia, panic attacks. Yeah. Well, you, your practice represents, yes. Um, it sounds like the entire yes, uh, I'm actually population. The, yes, I'm actually the only full-time clinician providing psychiatric services. I work in a community um, health center where we have primary care, um, mm. dental, um, behavioral health, and uh, we also have physical therapy. So mm -hmm. most of the primary care clinicians refer patients to me mm -hmm. and patients come also from outside referral. And um, when patients come to me for primary care, I try, I try to keep them for at least a year once they are stable on their medications, I try to discharge them back to primary care uh -huh. so that I can take on new patients sure. that need services. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Will they take them back? Oh, yes, they do. <laughs> I mean, they do. And uh, especially if they work for my company, they can always collaborate with me in-house mm -hmm. um, in if they have questions. I can always assist them as needed. Yes. Okay. All right. That makes mm -hmm. sense. So uh, under the terms of your current licensure, do you 
collaborate with anybody? Or are you 100% independent? How does that work for you now? Well, that's a very good question. Um, I mean, instead of New York, in New York, NPs can practice independently when they have um, worked for at least, I believe, 3,600 hours, right? Proud to come into New York, I had already worked for more than that. Mm -hmm. So I could practice independently. But the caveat is that my current employer is an FQHC. I don't know if you're familiar with that term. No. <laughs> okay. And, and FQHC is a federally qualified health center. They mm -hmm. are like nonprofit organizations that provide healthcare services to people, whether or not they have insurance. They have what they call like a sliding scale fee. Mm -hmm. where uh, you might not have insurance and you just let them know what you are making yearly. And sometimes you could see me and you only pay like five bucks mm -hmm. because they get funding from the federal government mm -hmm. to make sure that they can keep up with that. So, but a majority of my patients have insurance. Mm -hmm. So a majority of the patients that I see have insurance. So, and um, yeah, I mean. Does that affect your ability to practice if you're working in the uh, for the federal or the, the patients no. are seeing what, where the payment is coming from does it affect your license no 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 it does or? not it okay. doesn't it does not affect licensure yeah to get back to your question you asked me if i have supervision collaboration mm -hmm. yes because my company is an fqac is what i was trying to get to um they are required to have a supervise a collaborating they don't call it supervising a collaborating mm -hmm. physician mm -hmm. so i have a psychiatrist who works like once every so many months with us who is mm -hmm. available to me if i do need him mm -hmm. for any patient case and then once in a while we'll just meet and then we'll talk about patient cases and all that yes but that's just because of the type of practice i'm working at other than that i could be working anywhere else and I will be independent. I currently, I currently, I currently do telepsych on mm -hmm. the side for mm -hmm. other companies, and I'm independent. I, I don't have no collaboration. Yes. And can you can send any prescription, any controlled substance? Oh yes, I can prescribe anything I want in New York State. That's is that's one of the states in New York. NPs can prescribe from schedule, every schedule drug that a physician prescribes, uh -huh. schedule two all the way through. Yes. Okay. An NP, all you need is your DEA to be able to do that. Okay. All right. But in other states, it varies uh, yes. by controlled substance class or? Yes, it does. It does. In Georgia, which is one of the most restrictive states, and I used to practice uh -huh. there, NPs are not independent practitioners. They need supervising physicians. So in the state of Georgia, I could not uh -huh. send a okay. controlled so substance really to the pharmacy like state. a Schedule 2. I could prescribe Schedule 4 lorazepam, clonazepam, all of that. But I could not prescribe schedule tools. The supervising physician has to do that in the state of Georgia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It varies. It varies where you practice. If you practice, like, and nurse practitioners have to be aware of the laws, mm -hmm. the state practice laws governing each state that you practice. If you are in mm -hmm. Arizona, you need to be aware of the state, of, state board of nursing actions and rules there. Arizona is one of the states that is um, independent practice. NPs in Arizona can do anything a physician does because they have independent autonomous practice for APRNs. Mm -hmm. Currently, there are about 24 or 25 plus states in the nation. So half of the country right now already allows NPs to practice independently. There's, there are a few exceptions. I think California just passed a law 
maybe last month, allowing, giving independent practice to APRNs in California. But some of those states have stipulations, right? Like you may, I think California is maybe you have to have been practicing as an NP for maybe two years or something. And um, in New York, you have to have 3,600 hours, but there are other states that do not have no hour requirements. You can just become an autonomous NP right out of school and practice mm -hmm. independently, like Arizona, Washington State. There are so many states like that, yes. Okay. And can you, you just clarify the difference between um, psychiatric nurse practitioner and then um, APR? Yes. <laughs> and I think there's a couple of abbreviations. Yes, APR. Oh, let me clarify. That's it. That, that's a okay. good point, um, Ken. APRNE stands for Advanced Practice mm -hmm. Registered Nurse. This refers to it in a, 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 a registered nurse who has gone to school to obtain like a master's or a doctorate degree, right? And in either family practice, pediatric nurse practitioner, psychiatry, yes. Whether you are a psychiatric nurse practitioner, a family nurse practitioner, a nurse midwife, clinical nurse specialist, you are considered an APRN. Okay, so FNP is for family nurse practitioner. If you are certified, you can use C at the end for certified or BC for board certified. And that depends on the kind of board that you took. There are two boards that like that do the, that certifies NPs for family nurse practitioner roles and others. You have the American nurses uh -huh. credentialing, um, um, American nurses ANCC credentialing center. The American <laughs> nurses credentialing center own certifies all uh -huh. NPs in addition to the psychiatric mental health nurse practitioners. That is the only organization that satisfies psychiatric NPs. And then you have the AANP, which is, I believe, the largest that certifies family nurse practitioners, pediatric nurse practitioners, um, nurse, yeah, and all of the adult gerontology nurse, all the nurse practitioners, you know, all acute care nurse practitioners and all that. So the credential that an NP will use, whether it be FNP, ANP for adult nurse practitioner or pediatric nurse practitioner, emergency nurse practitioner depends on their education as well as the board certification that is sat for. I see. So your ability to practice independently or not is not necessarily based on your degree, but no. your degree, this the state decides based on the combination of your degree in your hours, am I getting that right? Mm, technically, yes and no. Let me clarify. Your ability to practice independently depends on the state in which you practice. Your ability to practice independently as an NP solely depends on the state. Mm -hmm. You could be living in New York, your license in New York, you decide that, hey, I don't want to do this collaboration thing or supervising <laughs> physician thing. <laughs> you just go and get a license in Arizona and work in Arizona, but you live in New York. You do telepsychiatry, for example. Mm. You're going to practice independently in the state of Arizona, but you live in New York. But mm -hmm. your patient population will be in Arizona. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So, and yeah, so that's a way to get around it if you really, really want to do 
to practice independently, mm -hmm. but then you live in a state that is restrictive mm -hmm. still mm -hmm. to get a license and another, just go, go across straight. You don't even have to go there or drive there. You do it online, apply mm -hmm. the issue, mm -hmm. the certification and the license. You just look for a job in that state mm -hmm. or you open a practice in that state. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> so what's your take on independent practice and at, at what point, regardless of degree or what the state government says, at what point do you think nurse practitioners should be uh, being supervised or consulting? And at what point do you think they're okay to transition over to independent practice? That's a great question. One that is hardly debated around the nation, online, on radio, everywhere, mm -hmm. in NP and both physician communities, right? This is a hot topic. So as an NP, I'm going to give you uh, my view on that, both as a clinician and also as an NP, mm -hmm. okay? Um, when I got out of school, I'm gonna use my own experience to be able to answer this question. When I graduated, my NP program as a family nurse practitioner. I was not trained. I did not do residency in psychiatry, like how psychiatrists would do just fully loaded psychiatry. Like, mm -hmm. no, I did not. I did because you in NP programs, you can do, you can pick a specialty. When I was in the FNP program, family nurse practitioner program, you can speak, pick a specialty and you do 40 hours in that specialty. I don't even remember what I chose. I don't know if I chose orthopedics or psychiatry. I, I cannot recall. Okay, it's been so long. Yes. But then when I got out of school and I got that job, I was very excited. And um, I was also afraid, hmm. right? I was like, okay, it's, it's all good. You know, when they hire you, they tell you you're going to have support. Nah, that's, sometimes it's just not true. It's BS. Sometimes it's not true. They tell you all this thing, you're going to have support when you need it. Now nah, you get there, you don't get no support. All right. In instances like that, I do not support autonomous practice for NPs. You know, the NP education is not uniform across state lines where mm -hmm. there's this requirement that you have to be a registered nurse for like three years or four years before you go to NP school. Right now, you have nurse practitioners. I'm sorry to say this, but it's true. You have registered nurses who just graduate mm -hmm. a registered nurse program in May mm -hmm. and are studying a nurse practitioner program in August. That is not safe. That is not someone that I would advise to graduate and just run off to start diagnosing and treating patients. But there's a difference. If you have, an, if you have a registered nurse who has worked for life, three to four years, five years as a registered nurse in the setting that he or she, right, becomes an NP. Say you are a psych NP and proud to go into psych NP school. You've worked in inpatient psychiatry, outpatient psychiatry, right? You've dealt with both pediatric, geriatric, or adult patients. And then you go to NP school, ultimately becomes certified and licensed. I see where you could mm -hmm. be living in a state that provides autonomous practice for NPs and you want to go into practice mm. and practice as an autonomous MP, right? Because you have some background into the field that you are going to. So mm. I support autonomous practice in that regard for nurse, nurses that had experience proud to go into NP school in the field in which 
they are pursuing an NP certification. Say if you're a family nurse practitioner, it will be you, the patients will be better served if you had worked in oncology or message where you have all the patients. Message, you see everything, right? If you did rotations, message flow, you have everything you have from stroke, no, 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 uh, respiratory COPD, GI, all of that. If you did that for three to four years and you went to NP school and you did rotations, mm -hmm that you you did you had some good preceptors right that kind of educated you and taught you to bring you up to the provider standard i could see you getting out of school and practicing with minimal support right and um for independent practice as a whole if the np programs could mm -hmm. like have a set standard for all the schools it's going to be very difficult because this is something that i think a lot of people would wish that existed, that the standards are the same, no matter what school you go to. If the standards were the same, where before somebody could even think of applying to an NP school, this person has worked as a registered nurse for at least two to three years, at least. Because the first year you are basically learning. The second year you are implementing what you've learned. Hmm. The third year you are beginning to, be, to, to, to get to become your own, right? Where you can do rounds you can teach and mentor other people right so if our programs could be standardized like that then i see where nps could become independent right out of school but as long as they are not i believe that some nps need to have that supervision and collaboration when they are just starting out before branching out to become autonomous nps even if they live in independent practice states mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so what would you say to psychiatrists who are ambivalent or uh, opposed to it? Well, I would say this. First of all, I just like for psychiatrists, I mean, I have very good friends that are, psych that are psychiatrists. <laughs> I have very good friends that have worked with me and that um, would trust me to care for patients when in their absence and that did trust me to do that. Yes, I had people, I had psychiatrists that are friends of mine that trusted me to care, for, to be able to provide not just safe and effective healthcare to their patients in their absence, but evidence-based. Care not based on what I learned on the street, but what I learned in the books, in the groups of things, clinical rotations and reading and all that, and mentorship that I got along the way, right? So psychiatrists should be open-minded and give NPs a chance, you know, mm -hmm. for them to just say that, no, their education is not equal to ours. I don't believe that's a healthy conversation to be had because they are both different tracks, right? The NP education and the MD education, the route are two different routes. Even though when we get to mm -hmm. the clinical setting, psych NPs or family NPs mm -hmm. do basically the same things that psychiatrists do and Family doctors do. The training is different because nursing, from a nursing st standpoint, ours is a nursing model. The MDs is a medical model, right? Um, mm. So they need to just understand that it's a different track. And most RNs that become NPs that I know did not just get out of high school or college and just say they want to become NPs. They've worked in many settings many times before somebody becomes an MP. 
those that are friends of mine, they've, they've done critical care, ICU, ER, right? And then they end up becoming an ICU nurse practitioner. They've been there and done that. So they know what that role entails, right? So it would be good for psychiatrists if they meet an MP that they try to at least understand their educational background first before just putting everybody in the same basket. It's good to kind of maybe talk to that next practitioner and try to get an overview of their education and training before casting doubt as to their clinical ability. Because you'll be amazed if you talk to some MPs. They are good. Nest practitioners are very good. They are thorough. And um, we provide care that is nurturing. Nurses nurture people. You know, patients like to see me, or I'm going to speak for myself, because they tell me that when I come to you, like, I just want to stay here because I feel so good. Like, yes, because I don't look as at a patient, as, I don't look at a patient like an obstacle. I look at patients like they need, a little bit of help to live life that is um um that will lead them to a better path and a lot of this is education okay nurses are good at educating patients about the reasoning i do not make any decision without telling the patient with the reasoning for that decision and sometimes they are bound to disagree with me but i try to involve them in that I don't say, no, this is prosa, go pick it up. No, I tell you that, okay, you got depression. Maybe it's mild. I believe that we should maybe pursue therapy first. Give it a couple of months, just follow up with me. And then if it's not getting better, then we can talk about meds. And then we'll get to that. I don't just say, okay, we're going to start Prozac. No, I tell you there are choices. This is the first line. Right, this is the second line. Okay, I go through side effect profile and all of that based on each patient. You know, pick like two or three meds and then you educate them and ask them, which would you like to try? Based on all these things that I have told you about these medications. Okay, tell me what symptom are you fighting the most? What is most distressing to you? And that's how I inform them. And by that, they are able to tell me, okay, because you said ABC would help me with, let's try that first. So psychiatrists should be open and speak to NPs mm -hmm. and not mm -hmm. put everybody in the same basket because they are NPs that are very knowledgeable, that are passionate about the care they provide. And when we hear that, oh, NPs cannot practice independently, it sucks. It sucks. There are so many patients that need help. And there's a, a huge shortage of psychiatrists around the country in many communities. Some patients wait six months to get seen. That is just unacceptable in mm. the United States. So anything that can be done to alleviate patient anxiety and stress and get and get patient taken care of, we should be thinking about those things. And open a broader conversation to educate. If you feel somebody is not up to par, educate them, train them so that mm -hmm. they, yeah, educate, educate them. Mm -hmm. Do you find the psychiatrists that you've worked with are open to what you're you're thinking about here actually that's a very good question because <laughs> when i interviewed for i interviewed for a job once when i walked in you know before you go in you've sent your resume 
and they've already looked at it and diced it, how they're going to grill you during the interview process. When I walk in one, and when I walk in and I have interviewed with everybody, the medical director, the HR staff, and now they took me to the psychiatrist who was going to be the ultimate decider of whether or not I got that job or not. When I walk in his room with my resume in his hand, he was like, welcome, Dr. Ngalame. I was taken aback. I'm like, oh my God, really? Okay, have a seat. I sat and we mm -hmm. chatted. It it's like your resume is very impressive. You know, I like what I see. So why don't you tell mm -hmm. me? I mean, we just chatted like we were colleagues. That was refreshing, you know, and not every psychiatrist is like that. Not all of them. So just like I said, not every nurse practitioner is not good. They are very good ones. Just like they're very good psychiatrists who understand and respect what NPs bring to the field. And I mean, I had a very good relationship with the psychiatrist because just the very first meeting, I was like, okay, this is unheard of because of what you hear, the, the chatter you hear online about groups fighting each other. No, it's not healthy. But um, a workplace, they gotta be some professionalism, open communication and Collaboration is not a bad thing. Collaboration is actually very healthy and very good. Even physicians collaborate among themselves. Yes, collaboration is not just for nurse practitioners. It's a two-way street. Yeah, I have, because I'm dual certified in both family practice and psychiatry, I have physician friends of mine call me when they have complex patients, diabetic, going through dialysis, all of that, and, that, and dialysis, they call me to get my knowledge on how they should approach mm -hmm. the case. Mm -hmm. So collaboration is not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. NPs can collaborate with psychiatrists and the reverse is true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, you all have something to offer each other in that in that context there. That's a nice way to put it. Definitely, What what is your take on that? Collaboration is uh, <laughs> what's best for patients and clients and it's a really complex system for them. I think I can understand arguments on both sides of the equation, but ultimately that's where we're at today. And could the system be better in general? Yes, that's probably a, yeah, a conversation definitely. for another podcast, but, <laughs> but for where we're at today, uh, it's definitely. Uh, yeah, working together is in the patient's best interest. So that's true, I, I agree, I agree Conco. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I'm curious about your thoughts for new grads, uh, nurse practitioners finishing up their training and thinking about what pathway they should be pursuing and um, how, how would you help them think through that process? Wow, excellent question, Ken. Actually, um, if you are a student NP that is in school, mm -hmm about to graduate i'm hoping that before you went to np school you have some experience in the track that you are pursuing be it family nurse practitioner psychiatric nurse practitioner pediatric nurse practitioner or what have you right um your your decision as to how you are going to get into the field of a clinician the role of a clinician very much depends on your background that you bring to the field. It very much has to do with it. For me, like I said, I took a job in psychiatry because I knew that 
I had worked in psychiatry as a, as a registered nurse for so long. I was familiar with the medications. I knew what to look for, safety issues in the setting and all of that. So a nurse practitioner getting out of school should evaluate all those things, right? And I recommend NPs not just getting out of school, even though I'm for autonomous practice, I am not for autonomous practice right out of school. I am for NPs getting out of school, get experience, try to get a job where you are going to be trained mm -hmm. by psychiatrists or psychiatric nurse practitioners or family nurse practitioners, depending on your clinical role. Get Mentorship is very important mm -hmm. when you get out of school. What should they be asking the psychiatrist or the, the clinic director about supervision? I'm just thinking about your experience in Georgia and yes, it was uh, supervision in name only. In space. Yeah. In name yeah. only. And it's, and it's like that in many cases, not, I'm not, the, mm -hmm. I'm not an exception. I'm telling you, I hear from NPs all around the country mm -hmm. that complain that they have to be paying this money for supervision, especially those that have mm -hmm. privacy practices of their own. Mm -hmm. But then the physician mm -hmm. is only available by phone when needed. It's not like he's there going through every patient case telling you that no, you should have no. They just go to the computer and sign 10% of your charts. That is not healthy supervision or collaboration, right? So if I were interviewing for an NP position as a new graduate, I would be asking what support is available to me, mm -hmm. right? Is the support going to be here or phone mm -hmm. person? What? How often can I get the support? Mm -hmm. I will be asking the employer, mm -hmm. are you going to be incorporating time into my schedule where I can meet, say, maybe weekly with this collaborating physician, if that's the case, so that we can review cases, talk about things, right? And, mm -hmm. you know... I'll also advise NPs that um, ask employers about support is number one, that, that support, that practice support is very important, clinical support, where if you have a case or that you don't know what to do, can this person, can you just, I mean, creating time. Because when you create time and you, you do case presentation with your collaborator, right, it also opens your mind to mm. other things that you may be neglecting, right? You see their own view. Like there are times where mm -hmm. I would meet with my collaborating physician and we'll be discussing a case. And mm -hmm. I'll say, this is what I think. What do you think about it? Yeah. And he will talk to me and say, you know, yeah, but if the patient is doing this, mm -hmm. you just say, this is the policy. You know, this is for their own good. For example, case in point, I had a patient, for example, who had a long history of opioid use, right? And this patient, had, the history is not like a one, two year thing. It's a history of opioid use disorder that has gone over maybe 15 to 20 years. And he's still, the patient was going to pain management, right? And because I do prescribe buprenorphine or suboxone for opioid use disorder, he found out that I can prescribe that. So he wanted to come off his pain medicines so that I could prescribe the buprenorphine immediately. I said, no, there's a process. I just, I said, it's for your own good. There's a process. I can't just say, 
take this is a script for buprenorphine, two milligrams of lingua. No, we can't do it that way. I said, given that you've been on this thing, it's chronic use, I'll need you to be impatient for detox first. You're gonna, first of all, make up your mind is that's what you wanna do. Discuss this with your pain management physician, right? And let him let you know how to proceed. I believe the right course is going inpatient for detox first. Because inpatient, you're gonna be monitored. And if there's any issues, you're gonna be attended. They're gonna stabilize you before they discharge you to the outpatient setting. And they can initiate buprenorphine in there before you are discharged. I said, that's a safe course. No, he wanted it immediately. <laughs> I said, nah. So I had this discussion with my supervising, with my collaborating physician. I said, he does what well, even even though he doesn't prescribe buprenorphine, because see, that's the thing. I have a collaborator who doesn't prescribe buprenorphine, right? So I'm telling him my case, but he at least, <laughs> yeah, he's like, no, you are right. You know, yeah, this is the process. You know, the patient has to understand safety is number one. I say, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you see my beef with collaboration and supervision? Ironic there. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. So in terms of thinking through uh, being an employee versus uh, a contractor or just uh, having your own private practice, <laughs> what would you advise for that? Well, you know, every patient's scenario is different mm -hmm. and people have unique needs and um, what they are looking for in a job, right? Um, mm -hmm. Like if you're just getting out of school, I recommend being an employee mm -hmm. first. Being an employee first, you're gonna learn a lot mm -hmm. if you have support in the practice. You're gonna learn a lot, not just about yourself, but your clinical progress, right? You're gonna learn a lot about your clinical ability, ability to talk to patients, because when you're in clinical rotations, for us, it's just like a mock exam. You're practicing, right? When you get out to the real world, <laughs> it's different. You can never, you can never tell. I mean, psych, somebody can be presenting as normal within 10 minutes. Ooh, it's chaos. So psych is unpredictable. You know, I'll, I, I'll tell my old self and anybody that consider being employed, being, being an employee first, being an employee first for at least a couple of years. And then if you want to venture on your own, at least you learn some things, get a mentor, and then see what route fits you. If you want benefits, then you want to be an employee. If you need benefits, medical, health insurance, paid time off and all that. And um, yeah. What's the best way to get a mentor, you think? Hmm. Mentorship, for me, I believe connections you make. You know, it's easier to connect on a professional level with those that you've known either through your education, your clinical rotations, or your years as a nurse, right? Mm. So um, that's why it's very important for registered nurses to work first mm -hmm. before they pursue an advanced degree as nurse practitioners because it allows you to create mm. connections. You don't make connections sitting at home or in a classroom. Cannot be a career student and create connections mm. like that. You're gonna, you're, they're gonna be just students like you, with all of you at the same level. Nobody can mentor the other one. You need to network with those that are in the field, and um, and those that have taught you to be able to get good mentorship. And um, 
Yeah. That's a really nice point. So you're not just building your clinical expertise, you're building your community and your ability to, um, to be a part of something that's bigger than you are and absorb yes, the, the knowledge from, from that. Definitely. Mm -hmm. And you can also do that by volunteering. Mm -hmm. I used to volunteer for a, uh, a nonprofit mm -hmm. that provided services to those that do not have insurance mm -hmm. in the state of Georgia. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it just took me volunteering once a week. So on Tuesdays, mm -hmm. I'll just mm -hmm. go give like two or three hours of my time seeing patients for free. You know, yeah. in that environment, you network with physicians that are retired, NPs that are retired, but that come and do the same thing. And that's a source you can create. You can, you, you, you connect like that, you know? Yes. And that's how, that's how I've been able to meet most of my mentors. It's true. Either volunteer work or my training or um, like the psychiatrist I used in Georgia for my collaborating physician when I was in the state of Georgia is a good mm. friend today. He's a good mentor. You know, I call him, he calls me and uh, we talk mm -hmm. about cases most times. So you cannot create mentors in a classroom if you're a clinician. You need to create them mm -hmm. across the board. Okay. okay. I, one more question. So when um, you, let's say you've been employed for a few years and you're thinking about private practice and um, it makes sense what you're saying yes. regarding benefits and things like that. But just let's say that weren't an issue and you're just debating uh, being out on your own versus being in a clinic as an employee. What do you think are some of the pros and cons of just finally being out on your own and in private practice? Mm. There, mm -hmm. I'll start with the pros first. The pros are that you're going to be your own boss, which a lot of people want to be their own bosses, right? <laughs> Those are the pros. And um, you're going to be a practice owner. Thankfully, your dream is realized, yeah. right? It's no longer a dream. Now it has definitely come true, right? And um, um, you're going to be able to, you're going to be responsible for the mm -hmm. budgeting, income, expense. You're going to be managing employees if you do have employees and all of that right. so it's a big responsibility it's not easy because some nights you will not sleep especially if yeah. you're yeah it's a very very big responsibility right, yeah. the, right. The, the cons <laughs> the cons are that <laughs> the cons of being um self-employed and owning your own practice is that every decision you make be it vacation uh -huh. Or what you're gonna be thinking? Okay, who's mm -hmm. gonna cover for mm -hmm. me? Right. Because you cannot just take a, a two. You cannot just take a one month and just disappear and leave your patients hanging. Mm -hmm. You wanna be able to have coverage for these patients, mm -hmm. or maybe you're just gonna have to hand out scripts so that they are not without mm -hmm. medications and don't get paid. If you were there, you'll be seeing these patients, right? Are you gonna bring in somebody to cover in your absence? So you do, you cannot just. Versus if you are an employee, you just put your request for time off. That's it. You don't worry about what's going to cover. Right. <laughs> you just put in your request. Hey, I'm going to France in three weeks or one month. You just put it in. If you have your PTO, you get paid. You're gone. You don't worry about the the, the management. The staff, the, I mean, the HR worries about, about, practice manager worries about that. You don't worry about it. You just put in your PTO, you are gone. When you are an employee, mm -hmm. when you are an owner, it doesn't work like that. You, you're going to be responsible. 
to ensure that your patients are not without the clinician, without their medications and all of that before you even go anywhere. And sometimes you might work late. If you are employed, if you are eight to four, at four, you are gone, right? In most cases, but if you are an owner, it doesn't end when you finish seeing the last patient. Sometimes you go beyond the working hours you set for yourself. So there are pros and cons. It just depends on everybody's situation. And um, you're going to be thinking about your own benefits. Maybe you want to set a retirement, right? If you are self-employed, you need some money for when you retire, for you're not going to work forever, right? Uh, as an employee, your paycheck is guaranteed. As a self, as an owner, it is not, especially when you are beginning, right? You're just trying to build that patient volume. So there are some hard choices to be made, money to be saved, right? And... Um, and if, if you have employees, you're going to pay them whether or not you see one patient. So those are some conversations that you have to have with yourself and plan so that you do not wow. fail. Wow, it's a lot to think about. <laughs> it's similar for psychiatrists uh, starting out uh, <laughs> as you're building up a practice. Mm -hmm. And sometimes uh, when I work with new grads, I recommend they do part-time uh, employees so they have the solid foundation. And then they can slowly build up their practice over time. Uh, with the patient population that they want to work with and without feeling the stress and the pressure of having yes. to take on private practice all at once it can be overwhelming that's true and that's a good point you made because that's one advice i give most people i said i tell my colleagues i said if you want to practice don't mm. quit your job don't if you work five days a week if you can go mm. down to part-time and have maybe two or three days in mm. your schedule do that you put those two or three days in your private practice and you work where you get some money coming in. And maybe sometimes in the beginning, you might have to put more time in your practice by maybe working weekends, even if you didn't want to do that. Maybe that's when you can see patients on a Saturday, right? I tell colleagues of mine, if you live in, say, New York, don't open a practice in New York. Open a practice in Arizona. They are three hours behind. Mm -hmm. Three hours behind in Arizona, mm -hmm. You can get off mm. work in New York at four. It's only one o'clock there. You can <laughs> like, go see. <laughs> yeah, uh -huh. the, after, the after the yes. after work crowd in Arizona and yes. your schedule aligned. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. And you go home. You start working. You see patients in Arizona. Saying you're like two to six. In Arizona, it's only three p.m. So ask, think about ways like mm -hmm. that. Be creative. Mm -hmm. and, um, and with technology today, you can do that because there's telesite. You don't even have to leave your house. Mm -hmm. Right, so there's a lot. Oh, that's great mm -hmm. thinking. All right, well, I've uh, we we have covered the whole gamut here, and uh, <laughs> so I appreciate Jacqueline coming on and uh, giving us a lot to think about. And well, this has been a learning experience for me, and um, so I hope to be able to hear how your practice is going over time, and come back and visit us soon, and. We'll see how things are playing out um, in the world. But I think you've, you've brought a lot to the table here and a lot for our listeners to think about. And so I hope it, it stimulates some good conversation um, amongst our listeners. My, definitely my hope. Yeah. I hope it does that definitely, Ken. And thank you for inviting me. I look forward to coming on as much as you want me to. So, that sounds great. All right. <laughs> thanks, Jacqueline. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh -huh. If you liked today's podcast and want to hear more, click the subscribe button. And to learn more about starting and growing a private practice, 
go to luminello.com and look for the Private Practice Hub.